Asian Americans and the 2022 midterm elections. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Conversation. I'm David Schuster. We are less than two months from the 2022 midterm uh, battles and election days, formally in November, and there's a fascinating, intriguing get-out-the-vote operation which is underway. It is uh, led by Lynn Wynn. She is a senior advisor with the Asian American organization Run AAPI, and Lynn joins us now. Uh, Lynn, first of all, tell me, why, why put this together? Uh, David, well, one, thank you for having me. Uh, two, thank you for us like having this space to talk about the power of the Asian American vote. I mean, I think that's that's pretty much it. Uh, David, there, we, we have a little under eight weeks before midterm elections are here. And yet every single year we are scrambling to understand who are Asian Americans, where do they vote, how do they vote, and here we are all over again. And yet we we claim this as, you know, the fastest growing racial demographic across the country. And yet we are still seeing this push to understand who they are. You know, so th this is, is a, a sprint to November all over again. And as our Chiron says, it's called give a F rhymes with duck about midterms. Mm -hmm. uh, is it just to sort of grab attention to use that? Is it trying to go for a <laughs> younger audience? Uh, what's what's the appeal there? I mean, I think I think y'all can piece it together. I mean, give an F about midterms. We are clearly trying to connect with young voters. If, if anyone Googles young voters and Democrats today, I mean, everyone is in a mad rush to understand how do we court them? Are we making sure they're getting to the polls? You know, young people can absolutely be saving the Democratic Party at this time. And yet we're kind of seeing the traditional engagement tactics all over again, right? And so for us, our, our whole thinking is that one, Young voters are absolutely going to be voting this year in 2022. Secondly, young Asian voters are such a, a fast-growing demographic, and yet why aren't we investing as much into this community as we are with others? Yeah, I think I read that uh, some, over the past 20 years, the Asian American community has literally doubled the number mm -hmm. of eligible voters in the United States. That's exactly it. I mean, and I think that the challenge here, David, is that, you know, even though this community is growing, not even not only in political influence, but that, you know, there are some states where if you if you do a breakdown of their voting electorate, you know, you might have five, six, maybe seven percentage of Asian American voters comprising of, of the entire voting map. You know, but when it comes to midterm elections, we know this. Some of these elections can come down to the hundreds of voters where every single vote is going to count. You know, and I'm here in Texas. There is a huge population here in Houston. All along the southern states, we are growing in size and in political influence, especially in Georgia. And so like, our biggest urge right now is that we have to continue this outreach and just like you can't forget about Asian Americans, again, as Americans and our political identity. What are the main issues that seem to resonate with Asian Americans? And is it that different from everybody else? Oh, that's okay. Good question. And David, I appreciate you asking that second piece because that that is something that we have been trying to, we have been screaming at the point when it comes to explaining that Asian American Pacific Islander voters, they are just as diverse. They are just as vibrant and multi multi-dimensional as any other voter. Uh, we did quite a bit of polling and case studies, specifically with young Asian American voters across the country. Economy, healthcare, education, immigration, all of these top issues. And of course, and I think we all know this, but the, the current issue on abortion rights, that is at the top of mind. And so, and you're right. So to your point, it's Asian American voters are just like every other voter. We we care on such a, a unique range of issues. Uh, but again, we are just asking for more love. Because of, I suppose, a culture and, and sort of heritage where a lot of Asian Americans come from, mm. 
or their families have come from places where there's, you know, a, a really big value on sort of a disciplined society, so to speak. Uh, it seems right. like there's perhaps maybe more Asian Americans who might sort of lean towards Republicans and say Latinos. Is that fair? Mm. I've, David, I've heard that, <laughs> that sentiment <laughs> so many times. And it just, I, I, I promise y'all, head to any any major city, talk to any at least young Asian voter. I think the, the, the greatest stereotype that we're having to fight is that one, a lot of Asian Americans under the age of 50 are a lot more left-leaning in mm -hmm. ideology than I think a lot of folks understand. And I think one, there is this like multi-generational divide uh, and you're absolutely right. And I think of my own parents, I'm Vietnamese. I, we we could not we couldn't talk about politics even today we can't talk about politics but things things are changing and I think the the greatest opportunity and specifically for again our Democrats on the ballot this year is that if you're not taking that effort to understand who young Asian Americans are today that is the one of the greatest missed opportunities for midterms and how do you see the the candidates doing in terms of understanding are they doing a very good job of trying to reach out to the Asian American community are they trying to understand their issues or I mean as we've seen with other groups, sometimes mm -hmm. politicians, particularly those who are not very savvy, just sort of take a lot of folks for granted. Right. I think it's, you know, like I said, y'all, we have roughly eight or so weeks before election days here, um, even in a state like Texas, where, again, we, we have amazing candidates on the ballot. You're running against limited resources, limited time, and, and honestly, limited money. And when, when you don't have the resources, you're not reaching the right people. And so I think it's, Sadly, I think what I'm seeing is that there are a lot of candidates that are leaving it to this very last push, you know, in the, in the last few weeks during the get out the vote uh, phase for candidates where, oh, my gosh, like we we got to hit up the, you know, the Asian boba shops or we got to make sure that we are uh, phone banking and canvassing in, in 12 different languages. And, and it, what we see year after year is these efforts come a little bit too late. And so I, I do hope it's changing this year. It's, it's really hard to tell at this time. Do you see any, you mentioned Texas, do you see any particular uh, states, particular races where the Asian American community could make a significant difference? I'm, I'm gonna say, y'all, it's gonna be Georgia again. Mm. It is, and like historically, we saw this in 2020, we saw it again in 2021 during the US Senate runoffs, but there were so many different pockets, and this is not just in Atlanta, but in the suburbs of Atlanta that, that made the defining difference, uh, specifically in Georgia, Congressional District 7. I think we, when we talk of that margin of, of victory, when it comes down to those hundreds of voters, if you are investing in that API community, that could make a defining difference, whether you win or you lose. But I, I wanna urge people to be watching and investing in Georgia as well. And in Georgia, it seems like those spa shootings were a galvanizing right. sort of issue. Uh, is it still sort of galvanizing the Asian American community now a couple of years later? Right. That's that's a very, very good point, David. I mean, we 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 deeply felt this during the pandemic and the rise in anti-Asian violence, uh, the, the rhetoric, the xenophobia. And I think the, the key piece here is that it we felt that it did impact the community deeply in a, in a number of uh, uh, cultural ways. I think what's going to be left for political candidates to understand is that like where how do we connect the dots and ensuring that one, we see Asian Americans as who they are belonging in this country. And secondly, when it comes to electing them in the office, then what happens? Right. We want that accountability piece. We want y'all to still continue engaging with us even after casting our ballot.
One of the greatest fears that I think it's whether it's, you know, the Jewish community, the African-American community, the Latino community, the Asian-American community, is simply sort of violence, uh, just sort of the raw racism, hatred that seems to exist in uh, far too many places across the United States. What, if anything, can a, an elected lawmaker at the federal level do about trying to curb that sort of violence, trying to make things perhaps uh, easier for these communities? Yeah, I mean, David, we, we kind of saw this a little bit. Uh, I think this is uh, uh, last year. Um, when the the bill on the anti uh, Asian hate crimes bill had passed, uh, and I think one thing, and this this was something a table that we were invited to, but when you engage and you bring in community advocates and you ask them, how do we reimagine your safety? What does this look like in New York City? What is what does it look like in Southern California? But how is it different here in Houston or Dallas or or in Atlanta? Um, but I, I think the to your question, I, I would very much urge a lot of our elected officials to not only uh, take into consideration what our lived experiences are like, specifically us feeling for our own safety, but inviting us to the table to help draft what this bill is going to look like. I, that is going to be a key piece. And in terms of uh, how the Asian community, uh, Asian American community votes, I mean, there's some predictability in terms of how Jewish voters, whether they show up on election day or cast early ballots, it's the same with heavily African-American precincts. Is there a stereotypical way that Asian-Americans tend to vote? And is there an effort to change that? Oh, that, no, I, I mean, I think there's a couple ways to look at this. One, I, I think there isn't enough data. I mean, we we talk on these, you know, post-election day, exit polling, what are the numbers telling us? And oftentimes that data isn't desegregated so that we can understand that, okay, uh, when we look at these different precincts, what is the breakdown of actual API voters? And that's been a very recent thing uh, in, in 2020. I remember specifically, uh, uh, we need to improve on, on understanding how to do these demographic breakdowns more specifically so that, yes, we can provide an, an accurate analysis of, of how they are voting and where they are voting. Um, but I will say again, I think Georgia in 2020 and 2021 just proved to us that we are surge voters. We are the, part of the margin of victory. And I think all along these states where, again, we're not just in California and New York City, um, uh, uh, we will definitely turn out in numbers. And I say that in, in very certain ways. And if this turnout does happen, if there is an Asian American mm -hmm. surge and it you know, supports Democrats, a lot of people are going to think, OK, well, are these more centrist Democratic policies? Are they more progressive Democratic policies? What is it that the Asian American community in general is looking for? I think one, we, we hear this a lot, David, and I, I, I can absolutely see other communities of color fighting for this, but one, we are, we're asking for better representation, right? Mm -hmm. And there's one piece in, in seeing us and, and seeing folks who identify as Asian Americans representing us in office, but I think the other side to this, and we hear this a lot specifically with young Asian American voters, they need people who know how to champion for their issues, right? It is not, and I will say this again, but it is not enough to simply identify and run on your race. It is not enough. And so I think for us, when we see voter turnout within our own communities, our, our issues are heard. Um, but we also just, we, we get a chance to have the seat at the table. We talk about this, this democratic table often, but often we're not included there. And our young Asian Americans, are they excited by this campaign? What's been the reaction? I'm going to be honest, David, and I think if you ask anyone across this country, I mean, we're, we're taking our time talking to young Asians and, and like very clearly asking them, do you give an F about midterms? 
it's a whole range of different responses. People are either letting us know, wow, I actually didn't know there was an election coming up. Others who are very, very excited. And I think others that are just driven by, yeah, like I see what's happening in SCOTUS. I see that there, my complete rights have been taken away. So it's it's been a range of different reactions. And I think to us, that's telling. I mean, we have to keep doing this work. Yeah, and good for you for doing the work and trying to uh, break through. Uh, Lynn Wynn, she is the senior advisor of the Asian American organization RUN, AAPI. Lynn, good luck to you. And thanks for Thank joining you. us. Thank you, David. You got it. And welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. A lot of Democrats, a lot of progressives are asking the question now in this midterm election year as we close in on the midterms, is there a new path for the left? And there's certainly a new effort underway to try to channel progressives and leftists towards certain policies. And here to talk about that is Dalida Harash, um, she is an executive director of Renew US. Um, Delita, I think I mispronounced your last name. It's Hasha, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Uh, first of all, no. tell me about this new effort uh, and, and what's what's the goal here? Um, yeah, so Renew US, uh, an organization, national organization, really thinking about how do we build a path forward, right? We know that the power of the right uh, didn't just uh, emerge. Um, they really um, invested in 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 local uh, races. They really inve invested their power, um, and we as the left need to do the same. Well, to that point, um, in terms of you know the the right, you know, focusing on on local issues. So it sounds like your effort, renew U.S. renew U.S. as opposed to thinking about you know federal elections, presidential elections, Senate and House, uh, that you this really is aimed at at state and local races. Yeah, so the we know that the power flows upward, and um, you know that is why the right really invested uh, in the states, and that is we have to to do the same, right? We have to make sure that we invest um, in power locally because the power flows upward. Now, there's there's an argument that Republicans say, look, it's a lot easier for them, perhaps. And I think it's not just Republicans making this argument, but it's a lot easier for Republicans to say, look, when it comes to our local school board or our local town elections, we can identify the clear, let's get the teachers out of our families, let's pull certain books. There's certain things Republicans can identify in terms of local issues that seem to resonate for them. How do progressives try to get, for example, on the issue of uh, climate justice, make that connection with local issues and local races? We have to address, there is so many issues. That is the problem, right? Uh, there is the ecological issue. We have uh, immigration issue. There is so, so many issues. Um, and they're all intertwined. And that has been the problem where we're, as uh, progressives or uh, or as uh, the left, uh, however you identify, uh, we at times tend to work in silos as if the in uh, the issues are not intertwined. And that is what we have to do, recognize that all the issues are intertwined and um, and make sure that we are working, we're coming together to, to build the power and work on the issues. Um, and when you build on, say, the issue of racial justice, what does that look like at the local level? 
Um, so racial justice uh, at the local level, like I said, a lot of the issues are intertwined, right? So we have to make sure that um, when we're talking about environmental justice, that we are not stripping the racial justice, the economic justice pieces out of, uh, you know, environmental justice in, in, um, in climate change, right? When we're talking about education, that we are making sure that we are not stripping the racial justice piece out of, um, you know, uh, education justice or um, criminal justice. We have to make sure that we continue to look at the issues through the lenses of race. And that I know can be uncomfortable, uh, but that is what we have to do in order to move forward uh, as a state, as a country. And you're, you're banding together with, um, with candidates, I believe it's uh, 12 states, is that correct? Correct, yes. And so you're essentially, I guess, funneling money and support to them. What do the candidates have to do in order to get the support of Renew US? So first, um, in order to endorse candidates, uh, Renew doesn't have this model of just like going into state and doing the work ourselves. We really uh, partner up with our anchor organizations. So before we can uh, endorse a candidate, they have to be endorsed by a partner organization that we trust on the ground. Um, and then once uh, a partner organization endorsed them, then Renew um, asked uh, candidates to sign a pledge with us um, and the pledge really make sure that the candidate commits to uh, fighting for racial justice, immigrant justice, uh, economic justice, environmental justice. Um, and once they sign that pledge, then we can endorse and support them. And has it been very difficult or, or easy for the candidates to, to sign that pledge? Yes, a lot of a lot of the candidates, it's very easy for them to sign the pledge because this is what they already stand for, right? Um, uh, because we want to uh, endorse progressive candidates. And as I said, we trust our anchor organization to make sure that they are uh, supporting progressive candidates. However, there are candidates that don't feel comfortable signing um, a piece of paper that says that they commit to racial justice. And if they don't um, sign, we, we just don't support um, them as a candidate. Now, in looking at the 12 states uh, where Renew U.S. Is, is trying to sort of operate and be helpful, uh, Arizona, Kentucky, uh, uh, Connecticut, Georgia, Indiana, Maine, Massachusetts, Michigan, uh, North Carolina, um, Texas is not part of that 12, California, New York, uh, not part of, that, part of that 12. How come? Um, so uh, the, the co-founders of, of Renew um, really uh, set through a deep dive of uh, where we needed to, to build uh, power, of where we had uh, organizations that we trusted. Um, and uh, those are the, the states, first six states, and then I, I came on board and expanded into the other six states. But that doesn't mean what we're not going into uh, the states that you mentioned. Um, uh, it just means that uh, we need to figure out what is needed because Renew is about filling in the gaps, right? Um, so figuring out what is needed, figuring out if we have the resources um, before we can expand into other states. For right the now, candidates who are embraced, endorsed by Renew, what is their biggest challenge? What is Renew U.S.'s biggest challenge in terms of trying to sell these policies uh, towards local voters and, and in some of these elections? Um, well, uh, some of the challenges is uh, we, as voters, sometimes don't lean into abundance. We've been mm. told that we have to fight for scraps. <laughs> and <laughs> there's always this question of, how are we going to do that? Where's the funding going to come from? Um, and sometimes that is the, the struggle, right, of really... Uh, 
convincing the voters that we have enough resources in this country to make sure everyone has their basic needs fulfilled and to make sure that we can work towards something bigger, right? Uh, but because we've been so conditioned um, to fight for uh, uh, to believe that we don't have enough and fight for the little bit that we think we have, uh, sometimes it's hard for, for voters to truly believe that we do have enough. And that's been a consistent uh, argument that's been made to progressives in general that, oh, you should be more pragmatic and just try to you know move to the center to help win elections and then we can make some change at the margins. But I keep hearing from a lot of progressives, people on the left that, no, the way to energize voters is to be passionate about these issues and to make pledges like what Renew US is asking the candidates to do. Exactly, exactly. Now, how optimistic are you that that translates into victories uh, this fall in the midterms? And, and where are you where are you most optimistic? Um, you know, uh, in 2020, when we launched, um, we endorsed 200 candidates and we had about 64% uh, of our candidates a win. Um, so, you know, there is a path forward um, and it's not always going to be uh, the case that we're going to have, you know, 60, 70 percent of our candidates a win. Um, but we have to continue to build. What we can't do is give up. Right. Um, and uh, here in Massachusetts, uh, I live in Massachusetts. Uh, we saw some great wins, uh, progressive uh who uh, and then we saw a lot of progressive who lost against incumbents and there's so much lessons there um and we have to sit with those lessons um and be able to to go at it again we just can't give up you know yeah and one of the, i think the, the greatest challenge in terms of getting rid of the incumbents is so many of them are taking money from fossil fuel companies and PACs, and you're making sure that your candidates do not take money from fossil fuels and i imagine just purely in terms of political strategy financing that puts your candidates at somewhat of a disadvantage. Yes, and we have uh, a candidate here in Massachusetts who lost an against an incumbent by 50 votes, uh, mm. right? And as I was uh, talking to her, um, she said, if I just had a little bit more money, um, which means that we have to um, uh, continue to engage our, pe our people because uh, the little bit that you have, if you can give uh, $5, if you can give $10, it's gonna go a long way for a candidate because now imagine 50 votes, that is so painful. Are there particular state legislatures where you see as being sort of fertile ground for these efforts? I mean, just looking at the list, I mean, you know, Arizona is sort of interesting, but North Carolina, it's uh, it's sort of in the South. Um, I mean, some of these legislatures are, you know, a lot of them Republican dominated in terms of state lawmakers, but it yeah. seems like there's so much that happens at the state level. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, for example, in Indiana, it's just mm -hmm. We just need, Indiana needs a lot of investment um, there, right? Um, and there is a path forward. Um, and that is uh, one of the, the, the states, especially uh, Northwest Indiana, that is so ripe. And we want to be able to invest there uh, looking towards 2030. Some of the states that we're in is not going to be a two, three year cycle um, to really win uh, power, but it's going to be a little bit longer. But we are committed to to stay in and, and, and investing and, and win that power. Well, it's certainly music to my ears whenever I hear anybody talking about uh, Democrats in Indiana, because I grew up there. And while it is known as a very conservative state, there are these pockets, whether it's Indianapolis or the northwest part of the state with Gary and South Bend, where there are some you know, liberal enclaves. And there's also these policies that I think uh, even sort of centrist voters are sort of more amenable to. So I think Indiana's a great choice. I'm also sort of intrigued by uh, by Georgia, which is, of course, on everybody's sort of battle list. 
Exactly. Um, and oof, Georgia, there was so much work happening uh, in Georgia. Our partner is really on the ground. There is so much potential there and a lot has been done already. Uh, and obviously, um, you know, you can't take the credit for it, uh, but we are there now and just doing amazing work. And I just I can't wait to see uh, what happens in the near future with, with Georgia. Well, the uh, organization is Renew US, and Dalida Hasha is the executive director. It's a relatively new organization. Uh, Dalida, thanks so much for coming on, and, and good luck to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. You got it. And that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, Mark Gillespie, and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for joining us.